Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, guys, we are live. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. I am pumped for this one. I'm excited, as I know everybody else is as well. Guys, we'll be having a great show tonight. Definitely one to remember. Send in your questions pertaining to the topic that we will get to, of course, after Dr. McKay's presentation. I just wanted to give um, Dr. John McKay a brief introduction here. He is an Australian young earth creationist and the international director of creation research. He is a distinguished Australian Christian scientist. Now, Christian Research is a Christian ministry funded by gifts of God's people proclaiming Christ as creator, sustainer, savior, Lord, and judge. Now, he is not just a great geologist, but also a great teacher who has a natural ability to simplify and demonstrate what he is teaching. He is critical of carbon dating and other radiometric dating as interpretive. He's actually debated the topic, be it resolved that the genetic and fossil evidence supports the evolution model and refutes the biblical creation model with philosopher Dan Ryder in 2012. As a matter of fact, um, Dr. McKay has had an interesting debate, or I should say discussion, uh, that I've personally watched with uh, Richard Dawkins. Now, creation research uh, exists to seek evidence for the biblical account of creation, Noah's flood the Tower of Babel, and related evidence. They investigate and promote this evidence in order to glorify Christ and build his church. So please become part of the, the creation research support world, worldwide team and help spread God's word about God's world. If you can, with a, a donation or by purchasing one or more of many of his, of his great videos. Uh, if you can't, then your prayers, of course, would be greatly appreciated. I'm going to link his, his website, his material in the description box. Um, I've also been informed um, that there's a good chance Professor David McQueen, whom we've had the pleasure and honor of having with us on two previous occasions, as well as Dr. Steve Austin, who may be listening to this live stream. They hold Dr. McKay in the highest esteem. Um, I'm gonna hand it over to George real quick for a few words as well, uh, before we hand it to Dr. John McKay. George, uh, thanks for being here for this important interview. And George, I think you might be muted, so just make sure you unmute yourself before you speak, brother. Uh, and then yeah, Thank you, Standing. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. McKay for um, joining us. Uh, I know we've tried uh, for a while to get him, but uh, he's had some difficulties with, uh, like everyone else, by the way, with the COVID-19. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. McKay. I'd uh, like to advise our audience that uh, Dr. McKay has a theory. I hope I don't embarrass him or, or myself, but... Um, uh, he has demonstrated to be, it's been demonstrated to be correct on multiple occasions. For those that don't know, John correctly predicted many years ago that as a man loses his hair from the top of his head, it begins to reappear at the base of his chin. And I'm living proof of your theory, John, and so are many others also. <laughs> so I, I would like to, I would like to add that we probably should call it a, the McKay law, not not theory anymore. If if you don't know, uh, if you don't know it already, I'm from Australia, just like John, 
And without being too modest, uh, we are a great bunch of Aussie larrikins. Right, John? <laughs> I would Aussies, agree I'm with sure. that totally, mate. I just <laughs> my camera on as well. So people can put it on the side as a present. So larrikin may not be a word they understand in Canada, but they know my sense of humour. They've heard me over there. And, yeah, true blue we are. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know, John, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know uh, Ozzy is, uh, as John is, uh, I hope you're not too embarrassed by my attempt at like humour, John. No, 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 no that's all right, mate. I understand Australians. Ser seriously, though, I, I must say on, on, the, on the first videos I saw, one of the first videos I saw when uh, researching the evolution debate was John's The Search for the Origin of Life. Do you remember that, John? Yes, we actually filmed that in, in Canada. Uh, quite yeah, amazingly. So, yes, in one of the public school classrooms. So it was, yeah, it's been a great success uh, over the years and it's still available on our YouTube, I believe. I was just going to say that. It's, you can find it on, on, uh, on his channel. It's, it's, uh, by the way, it's a great introduction to the history of life and what Darwinists believe, uh, believed right through to our modern understanding of DNA. John, I have to thank you. Oh, I was... Uh, wasn't always a young earth creationist, but that video opened my eyes. If, if you watch it, if you watch it, you'll appreciate what a great gift for teaching he has. Amen. I'll now hand it over to you, SFT, before before I embarrass myself further. <laughs> Amen, brother. Uh, great words. Um, like I said, I'm going to have all of the um, appropriate links. Uh, to what we're discussing in the description box for when this interview is done, people can check it out. Uh, Dr. McKay is also famous for having said, when you marry a theory, you divorce fact. Um, is, is that is that not true, uh, Dr. McKay? Yes, we've used that one many times since I've debated so many scholars uh, who obviously were not even connected to the real world because their theory blinded them to the actual evidence. Now, Christians shouldn't be surprised about that because the book of Romans says if you leave God out of your knowledge, God himself has built into the universe a rule that says he'll hand you over to foolishness so you can no longer see the evidence. And so it, it was a good Amen. lesson to learn that if people marry their theories, they divorce reality. How true. Amen. So true. Uh, well said. So before we ask you our questions and the questions from the audience, Dr. McKay, I believe you have a prepared presentation for um, our audience. So I'm going to mm -hmm. hand it over to you now, uh, Dr. McKay. And I'm going to give you I'm going to give you permission. You can roast George as much as much as you'd like. He's a, he's our resident comedian in this group, as you've seen uh, before we went live. So <laughs> now I'm going to do three things here. One is use the whole screen to see me. I'll just be the only thing on the screen along with a few rocks and fossils. And then we'll do a uh, PowerPoint presentation. Are we working at your end? You can see me. You can see the uh, uh, promotional screens yep. behind me. So everything's working over there. The trouble has been down under. You can't see what's up over. So as long as you guys can see the right thing, that's fine. Let me hold up some rock solid evidence. Do you see uh, that rock? It yes. comes up the driveway. I take young people out on field trips, as does our Canadian rep, Martin Legamati, who's not far from where your Canadian studio is. Uh, that's in COVID free time, that is. But uh, this rock here, I was leading a group who'd never been on a field trip before, and I told them to bend down and pick up a rock. 
And then I said, well, what is it? And they puzzled over that for quite a while. And then one kid said, it's a rock. By the way, rock's just an old word that means hard. Um, nothing technical, nothing fancy. We, we've invented these words and they're descriptive words, one rock. And then I said, what sort of rock it is? And he didn't know. And he passed it to his friend. And I said, well, what do you think it is? And he said, I don't know. Uh, and anyway, he passed it to his friend. And I said, okay, it's now the 21st century. How would you find out what this rock is? And they puzzled for a little while. And the guy said, Google? Well, the interesting thing is most people don't see the evidence because they don't even know what they're looking for. I mean, say you find the name on Google, what does it actually mean? That's definitely a rock. How about I hold this rock up? See this one here? Now, when you look at that, that's the first stone tool I ever found. I found it in Mad Dog Creek here in Australia. Yes, we have wonderful names for places <laughs> in Australia. Um, this is off the road. Now, I've never met anybody who thinks somebody actually shaped that deliberately to be a bit of a rock on the road. Oh, yes, they know it's been crushed by a big crusher, but nobody intelligent actually made it that shape. But I've showed this to many students, to professors, and everybody says somebody who existed before it, somebody who's not a part of it, somebody who's smarter than it. It's not hard to be smarter than a rock, by the way. They actually made that. They shaped it. The evidence is overwhelming. Now, let's go one step further. You see this? Ah, now that's very recognisable. You see mm -hmm. the edge? Now, we yep. go from a rock that's unshaped to my first ever so-called primitive stone axe. Whoops, I've got to get this right. We're back to front here on the, on, the, on the camera. Right up to this very nicely shaped one that we found here in Australia. Now, we can have a wonderful lesson on the evidence of creation. Uh, you, you, it's, did, did you get the point so far? You can always yes, yes. recognize the creation, whether it's a fancy axe or a rough stone axe or the cobble that just has been smashed up in a machine. Um, key point. Somebody existed before it. Somebody is not a part of it. Somebody is smarter than it made a rock do things that rocks don't. I mean, you know rocks don't do that, do they? They don't end up with nice sharp edges. They don't end up with polished sides. Rocks don't do that all by themselves. But here's a clue. You see, the people I got those rocks from here on the east coast of Australia have interesting stories about their stone tools because I interviewed one. We have a whole series of MP4s available, the USA, Canada, etc. Just go to our main website, Creation Research. And one of them is called The Origin of the Races. The next is called Real Roots. Another one is called The History of Man. And you'll see me interviewing native elders here in Australia, Aboriginal folks, Indigenous people. And the old Aboriginal elder was showing me lots of stone tools. And, you know, the interesting thing was they just looked like stone copies of our metal tools. And he said his people have a story that when they first came here, they bought metal tools. But then they discovered the spirits up in the hills and they forgot how to make and use metal. Now, there's a story that the evolutionists don't like. 
Oh, the Aborigines know the stone tools were created. They didn't happen by themselves. Oh, they're not as clever as God's creation of the universe or God's creation of man. But nevertheless, they didn't happen by themselves. But they also gave you a clue that they came from somewhere where there was already steel, where there was already the art to make metal. Because if you come with me to India, you'll see our Australian dingo. You'll also see weapons like this. Do you recognize the Aussie icon, the boomerang? Of course, the ones in India are not exactly shaped as nice as these ones. And the ones in India, if you throw them, they won't come back. That's why you need a dog. It's a stick, remember? Yes, thanks for <laughs> your joke, mate, over there, George. Um, there's a boomerang. And it's famous for the fact that when you throw it, it circles around and it will come back. Until you get it right, of course, it slaps your baby brother in the head, breaks the next door neighbor's window, but it's an interesting piece of a creation. You see, you've taken wood and you made the wood do what wood won't. Now, this is a boomerang. Uh, this one here is a boomerang also. This is more like the ones you'll find in India. Um, this one, a, a lovely group of Aboriginal people west of what you mostly know as Ayers Rock. You know the big rock in the middle? Um, those people out there... They made these for us, especially. Now, this is, oh, let me show you them so you've got the idea. That one there is a curved throwing stick, and it comes back. You'll find throwing sticks more like this, even amongst the native tribes of Arizona. It's a curved stick, but it's not designed to come back. This one here, if you throw it and you aim it to hit something, it won't come back. So you've got to figure out, what could you use this for to throw it at so it didn't hit it, but it would also catch it and yet it would come back? Good question. We're having a Q&A at the end. If you want to find out, you can ask me. But this one here, can I warn you? If you come to Australia and you see a big Aboriginal man and he's got one of these curved throwing sticks, but not your normal boomerang, and he's pointing it at you, can I suggest you run or you yeah. duck? Or you hide because I've this got one, one of those, John. You got one of those, have you? It's not yes, between I, have, I can tell that. You yeah. see, this one is a killing stick. Now, you come with me to Ayers Rock, uh, Uluru, in the, in the current native political correctness. Um, come with me west of Ayers Rock, and, and you meet the Walpri people. Now, the Walpri people made this for us. Yes, you have to get the right shaped bit of the root. You have to then shape it. You have to know aerodynamically what you want to do so it will go through the air straight to where you want to throw it. But it's not designed to come back. It's designed to kill you. All right, now think carefully. The Walpuri people, what do they call this killing stick? Now, you've, you've kept track, haven't you? Here we have our stone tool. Australian Aborigines are famous for their stone tools. Of course, as soon as the Europeans came and bought metal tools, they abandoned their stone tools everywhere. Why use a stone tool when you can get a metal one off the European so-called invaders? Well, in reality, the stone tools were part of their story that says we used to be able to make it and we came here and we forgot. Um, the Walpuri people, they also have a story about these. You see, this one here is actually called Kali. That's the name of it. You and I would call it a killing stick. They'll call it Kali. Now, how good's your background knowledge? 
you see, the Bible's a book, and over the years, the one thing I've learned about the about the whole of God's word is it's true from the beginning and will remind you about that. The Bible never says you have to go find the evidence to convince yourself. The Bible says the evidence is everywhere and you'll have no excuse if you end up denying it. It's so obvious, says the book of Romans. Okay, and on the East Coast where they make those stone tools, they came from another country to here. Uh, they landed in their boats on the East Coast. The wall priests, they call the killing stick Kali. Now, I've been to India. Do you know who Kali is? Kali is the goddess of death. You go to India, they had steel before many other countries did. Their old steel towers are still there. Or perhaps I'd better fill you in on the rest of the stone tool story. Remember I said they had stone tools that looked just like bigger versions of our metal tools? Well, Watch the DVD. Listen to the elder. Don't trust me just because I'm a good-looking Australian. Um, the elder said, um, we came from another land over the sea after much war and fighting after the big flood. You'd say, wonder why they didn't bring steel technology with them. You know, you see this all around the world. When people are forced to leave a place, war and fighting, you take what you can grab and you get out of there real fast. They forgot how to make steel. Whoever got left behind who knew it didn't bring it to Australia. Oh, and they landed on the East Coast, not far from where we're currently um, doing this broadcast. In their story is evidence that they came from another people. The dogs are over there. The boomerangs are over there. The steel is over there. Carly's over there, the goddess of death. On the East Coast, they came after the big flood. And that's the subject that the guys have asked me to address today. I've discovered the evidence is not just in rocks and fossils, but it's in biology, it's in anthropology, it's everywhere. So I'm going to get my assistant, Ben, here, who is controlling all the fancy buttons. Ben, we need to swap over to the PowerPoint and fill up the screen. So I'll see you at the end for question time. Awesome. Okay. Let me put that on the screen for you, gentlemen. Okay. Can you see the screen, guys? Yep. And I'm going to make it full screen, and we're good to go. Good. We're good to go. And here we are. Now I just need to press this, don't I, Ben? That one there? That's good. Okay, so you'll see there our main website, creationresearch.net. You'll see my young colleague, Joseph, who uh, we've trained for four years, and he's now full-time with us. And uh, you'll see one of his deadhead friends in the middle. Um, he's from the European Union. That's, that's Neanderthal. Oh, he was actually there before the European Union. So anything you want to find out about what we're doing, uh, feel free to go to the Q&A section. There's whole encyclopedia stuff there of just about everything. Um, we're going to take you to Jurassic Ark, the Aussie Creation Museum. 20 acres of wonderful stuff. Jurassic? No, no, no. Jurassic Park's the movie. It's all about dinosaurs. But Jurassic is a word that was invented by a guy who basically believed the Bible, and he believed in Noah's flood. He was a world-famous geographer by the name of Alexander von Humboldt. Where is it? We're on the east coast of Australia. See, you're way over on the top left-hand side. We're right down the bottom right-hand side. It's near a famous gold-mining town called Gympie. It's named after an Aboriginal bush, uh, the Gympie-Gympie plant, and boy, if you touch that gimpy gimpy plant, you really know it. It will sting you like crazy. Um, 
lots of gold found there in the early days, rescued our state from bankruptcy. We have people come, primary schools, your elementary schools, we have high schools, we have the public cut. We found a lot of fossils there 20 years ago. Families come and they really dig it. They enjoy finding rocks and fossils and digging them up. We even have a small model of Noah's Ark there and uh, you keep eyes on the big one that's coming in not too long down the track. We have a lot of beautiful Aussies. See our pretty parrots? You might be fascinated and that that one guy became really convinced because he was doing his doctorate on the origin of parrots and he rang me up to talk about the evidence and, and he was amazed. The further away you get from the Middle East where there's very few parrots, the greater the number of parrots there are. Basically, he said it's almost as if they started in the Middle East and they took off from three pairs. But in reality, that's what the Bible said they did do. Beautiful birds, aren't they? Our king parrots. And families come to Jurassic Park and they enjoy it. But we have a purpose other than just fun and, uh, and facts. When I first became a Christian, the old King James was about all there was. And this was one of my favorite verses. Thy word is true from the very beginning. Now, that's a pretty much of a challenge to someone who uh, uh, comes from an atheistic background, who's training in science, who's got a head full of evolution, now, of course, we set up Jurassic Ark to remind people there are plenty of opinions. I'm old enough now to look back and say all the theories in geology I learned in, in, in the Queensland University have all come and gone. And the new theories still do disagree with the Bible, but the facts never do. Now, if you push me to the wall now in a debate, and that's what we do to people like Richard Dawkins and the professors over there in Canada, um, and, 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 and all of the people who want to debate this, uh, they've got no evidence that God's word is false from the beginning. That's why we have such a good track record of winning debates. So let me remind you what the Bible says. I, I do this because you'll find people who say, I couldn't believe the Bible. Hand them a Bible. Ask them what it is they can't believe about it. you find they don't even know what's in it. Number one, the world didn't happen by itself. It was created. It was perfect. It was very good. Number two, there was a fall, a well-described. That word's not in the Bible, but it's a good description by the theologians. The world was created perfect. Don't blame God for anything bad. We blew it. Adam sinned. And one result was you end up with judgment, not just the judgment of death that comes at Adam's sin, but Noah's flood as well. Noah's flood, for those of you interested, is the first great climate change. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights and had nothing to do with the Mercedes-Benz that Noah was driving full of gasoline. There was a judgment by the God who controls the weather, as was Babel. You see, the Aboriginal people who brought their boomerangs to Australia. Did you catch that? Just as the natives in Arizona brought their boomerangs to North America, just as the Egyptians took their boomerangs to Egypt. Of course, we tidied ours up a bit and made it come back. So we ended up a little bit ahead. Didn't happen by itself. And finally, you end up with tribes and nations. And ultimately, you and I who are in this program or those of you who are watching it. Now, that's the big picture. When I debate people, I've got to be blunt. Most of them don't even know too much about evolution. Um, they may be specialists in the microdynamics of some molecule, and they're evolutionists by arbitrary choice. 
So they come to Jurassic Art and they see some of our dinosaurs. Again, go to creationresearch.net. There's two of our Queensland dinosaurs. The one on the left was found so well preserved, he still had food in his tummy. And the kids love them, don't they? Oh, and look, they can come and they can learn how to dig up. Yep, that's a real skull. There's a kid having a wonderful time. We teach them not only the facts of history, but how to find this stuff as well. And lately, we've gone virtual. Look at those high school kids. The dinosaur just pops out of, the, out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, you're right. It didn't happen by itself. Our dream art team, and I recommend them to you, do a wonderful job even making pterodactyls fly through the sky at Jurassic Park. And you can photograph yourself with all of these. Uh, by the way, have you ever seen a gorilla do this? You and I create. We don't do it as well as God does. Our pterodactyls disappear as soon as you turn your app off. But God's pterodactyls, they were real. They flew. And we've even got, well, what on earth is the crowd looking at? They're looking at a dinosaur trackway that we installed there. A-plus from the Aussie Dinosaur Museum. We're really pleased with that. And we even have the fossils on display. Or well, notice our label there, a fossil drowned dinosaur. Now, we could spend our whole time just on dinosaurs if we like, but they want to deal with the flood, the overlap. That guy was drowned. How do we know it? You mightn't have seen a drowned body. I have. It's not nice. But the scientists quite a few years ago decided, how come so many dinosaurs end up with their necks bent back and their tails bent up? And back in November 2011, they decided to, time we answer this, guys, they've been drowned. How would you know they've been drowned? They did the experiments. I won't go into the gory details. But in reality, if you've got a long neck or even a short neck, if you breathe air, the last thing you do before you drown is throw your head back, open your mouth, and try and gulp in the last breath you'll ever gulp. Usually it's water, and it really is the last breath. I mean, don't take my word for it. We've known it for ages. Here we are in Canada, Daspletosaurus. We're in a uh, big dinosaur area, and they've got signs up on these displays, death pose. Um, death pose? Why is its neck back? possibly related to drowning. Are we interpreting this the wrong way? No, they even put a mural. See the dinosaurs? Aren't there some fascinating weird ones there? That's in the mural. Let's show the rest of the mural. See on the right-hand side? There's you and me getting famous, finding it. Aspletosaurus we're going to name after our mother-in-law. Yeah, they got drowned. In reality, when you look, the evidence of dinosaurs drowning is actually built into the way they've been buried. I mean, look, here's one I photographed in Bavaria. Yes, I'm truly grateful to all of our supporters who have enabled us to get around and do the research everywhere. Head up, mouth open, tail over the top. Um, think carefully. If you're a human or a dog and you were drowned like that, you will find you not only have to be drowned, you have to be buried very quickly. Why? Because your body goes into shock when you open your mouth and breathe water in and your back tenses and the tail comes up if you've got one. But after you're dead, very shortly, your body will relax and your tail can't do that anymore. All over the planet. And I've been to so many continents now. I'm truly grateful for the many, many decades of research and visiting from Alaska all the way down to the tip of Australia. We've got fossil dinosaurs from China. Amazing. Drown, 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 drown. One simple point. You see, time doesn't make a fossil. 
time makes bodies decompose. A process of rapid burial and drowning is what makes the fossils. This is why just last year, our Dreamer team and ourselves got together and put a virtual book together for 10 years of age plus, in which you can actually not only read what happened to the dinosaurs, no, no, they didn't disappear in the flood. I wonder how they did disappear. Perhaps you need to buy the book or have a look at the reviews. You come to Jurassic Park, you don't only see dinosaurs, you see our giant shark's jaws. Yep, there's me right in the middle. Mega sharks? Well, there's the scuba diver beside it. Big critters. Courtesy of Dreamer? Look at that. We just installed him up there. These are fun things, by the way. Oh, that's the real size because here's one of the pictures out of things like Scientific America. Look how big they used to be. Now look at the bottom. See the tiny scuba diver? And you and I are scared of the guy in green. But in reality, there are giants mentioned everywhere in the Bible. Genesis chapter 5 and 6. By the time you get to Numbers 13, there's giant grapes and giant people. And most people have never thought, I wonder if it applied to other animals as well. What's interesting about the Bible is it's not just true from the beginning, but for those of you who are Christians who, like me, struggled and said, well, could God have used evolution? Um, here's a nail that went into the head of that one. By the time you get to the New Testament, over and over again, it reminds you that all things were made by Christ. Christ is the creator. And when you look at that with the big picture, Christ was there in the beginning. Christ made Adam in his image. Adam sinned and that defaced the image of God. Noah, in God's mercy, found grace. So you and I descended from, well, we're all boat people, quite reality. We're all descendants of those who are at Babel. But do you see the words on the left-hand side? The real history of the world is change. Oh, that's what evolution does. Change is true. If change is true, evolution is true. If evolution is true, the Bible is false. No, the real history of the world is change, but it's degeneration or devolution. Aren't you glad the sharks aren't that big anymore? Yep, come and visit Jurassic Park. Get your picture taken or visit us on the museum app there. You see, our whole purpose is to make sure we challenge uh, your authority. Who is it? Is it God's word or man's ever-changing theories? In case you missed the point, before I finish off with a section on the flood, let's challenge you. God created, God is just a position. The name of this God is Jesus Christ. Yes, there's Father, there's Son, and there's Holy Spirit, and they're all there making sure nothing happened by accident. And you and I were made in the image of the Creator, who is Jesus Christ. We are not just animals. We are unique. Hmm. We do rats to test COVID vaccine. All the best guys, we don't have a vaccine for COVID yet, but that's a whole different issue, and I can upset a whole country that way. But you see, in reality, God didn't give the rats dominion. He didn't give the monkeys or the apes the gorillas. He gave it to us. And then there's the key point. You see, don't you dare blame God for anything bad. You want to know what the problem in the world is? No, it's not Donald Trump and it won't be Mr. Biden. The trouble is us. Every one of us needs to look in the mirror because we don't live in a good world anymore. This God reminds us that when he did make the world good, he made things after their kind. So don't be surprised. We found this fossil at Jurassic Ark. It's a perfectly preserved tree fern. You say, come on, how do you know that? The answer is we grow them at Jurassic Ark. 
they're still here today. And the Bible says God created things after their kind. And Charles Darwin invented a word. Um, you see Darwin, theory of evolution? He basically said seaweed turned into tree ferns. He basically said amoebas turned into people. And some of them got sidetracked and uh, turned into dinosaurs that died out 60 million years ago. But when he started to look for his evidence, he found that he couldn't find any fossil evidence. I've got to agree with Charles Darwin's chapter on geology. The worst part of his theory is the fossils. But unlike Darwin, I've majored in fossils and living fossils as well. Here's my grandson, Ben, my computer man for the day, filming one of our researchers, Dr. Diane Eager, and she's touching one of our botanical gardens evidences. She's touching a thorny plant. You see, the bad news is uh, this God judged the world. Oh, that's why this whole subject is so unpopular. It's not just about God. If it was about creation or a flood, it'd be fine. But it's about God hating sin. And God judged sin. He cursed the ground and thorns came and death and the world changed. And that's the world you and I live in, thorns and weeds. So don't be surprised when the high school students come, we deliberately get them to play with our thorny bushes. What's the name of that one? Well, it's called the crown of thorns cactus. And when the students touch it, they get amazed. You see the new thorns? They're soft. They're rubbery. It's only as it lives in a harsh environment and everything dries out that those thorns will prick you. When they first appear, they're absolutely gentle, like rubber bands, elastic. Won't do you any damage whatsoever. That's in the living world. God didn't make thorns um, you know, just by creating them, he said the plants would bring them forth. Here's a fossil vine. I found that fossil. You recognize what it is? You see, up on the top of the cliff, there was a modern-day plant with the same structures. And there's my fossil. You can see the fossil's much bigger. Well, everybody who sees this, there's some kind of fossil thorn or prickle, and they're right. And I found them under this coal seam in Canada called Carboniferous. Oh, Carboniferous is not an age. Carboniferous just means full of carbon. That's where it came from. A reverend gentleman in England invented that word to describe the rocks around Newcastle where they dig up coal. That fossil and that leaf come from just underneath that coal seam. And I've got heaps of them for our museum. So when you have a look at all of this, um, yeah, I know the Bible says, and Jesus repeated it in the New Testament, you will love God with your mind. So no apologies if I'm forcing you to think that's the job God has given me to do. I'd much rather be rich and famous some days than provocative. <laughs> well, you don't make a million out of ministry here in Australia, I'll tell you, because just about nothing's tax deductible. Um, but I can collect rocks. When did this rock containing fossil thorns form? You see, the God who was there reminded us that he commanded the ground to bring forth thorns because Adam disobeyed him. Ah, soft bits become hard. He didn't invent thorns just after. I mean, he finished creation at the end of the sixth day. What was going to become thorns were already there, but nothing would fossilize until there was something to bury them. That rock formed after Adam's sin, and it could only be buried fast enough to preserve everything by the time you get to Noah's flood. Now, the next bit is the key issue. We started with Aborigines and Stone Tools. They bought them here after the big flood. We looked at the Kali people, uh, sorry, the people in, in, in the Walpuri people who used the word Kali for their killing boomerang. Evidence they came from somewhere else. 
Babel and the flood are in many places, not just in the Bible. And here at Jurassic Ark, well, there's me just a couple of weeks ago, the day before we had a big storm that blew those covers to smithereens. What am I doing? I'm digging it. Do you see the fossil log there? Oh, you should actually see there's two logs. One log sitting on top of the other. Notice there's neither top nor bottom to the logs. They're broken. There's just the stick. Uh, I mean, these are significant sticks. But in every case, in the acres we've sort of excavated, there's no whole tree. Dr. Diane Eager was back up a week later. Um, she's based in Canberra. Uh, where she, the, the university is that she used to work in. She's one of our researchers, was a lecturer in medical biology. And look, here's what we excavated that day. Do you notice that most of these logs in this patch are lined up? Now, we know what the logs are. We've identified them. We've had the forestry people there. We've had the experts there. And if you like a bit of the history, we found these around about 2000. See the water in front? They put a dam in. We found bits of petrified wood, wood that had turned to stone. We used the water to hose them down. Um, look, broken logs, stone logs, no roots, no branches. Clue number one, they didn't grow here. You recognize being a geologist is playing rock detective, don't you? And that's why Jesus said, if people ignore me, the rocks will cry out. So Charles Darwin chooses to ignore God. Richard Dawkins wants God right out of the picture. The ABC, the BBC just ignores God all the time, but they can't shut the rocks up. Oh, and our friend brought in his nice tractor here. We excavate the first patch. See the original site? There, by the time we get to 2006 as our excavation pop, 2007, we've kept on going. We had volunteers come in. Oh, Jurassic. Jurassic doesn't mean millions of years, and it doesn't mean dinosaurs. It means like the rocks in the Jura Mountains. And I've been there. Why would they name these rocks Jurassic? Because they have exactly the same specimens. Here's father and son. Look what they ended up excavating. Not a bad day's work, don't you think? No branches, no roots. And right up at the end where you can see Dad, there's a big rock. Now, the significance? Trees float, rocks don't. That rock was washed in. Nobody believes that rock grew on the spot into a nice round eroded block. Yeah, we did smash a bit with the bulldozer. You can see it there, but we found the bit and glued it all back together. What you find is what we've got here is a deposit. So, see the lock at the top, rock at the top? You see that lock at right angles? Um, rocks don't float. Trees do. And we find trees of huge sizes there. Look at this young student helping us out as we have a polystrate log. Two logs. One smashed logs going across the strata. Nobody believes they grew there. And the biggest rocks, half a yard, nearly half a metre, 18 inches across. You know, when I do tests with sediments and with water, the one thing I find is the bigger the rock, the faster the current has to be going to move. That's not true for logs. Logs will move even if the water's going gently because they float. But rocks don't. I think I've mentioned that before. So you can go out and run tests. You can get a big fireman's hose and turn it up and find what speed the water has to be going to shift that rock. This was not just a flood deposit. This was a violent flood deposit. Um, see, I've got fossil flood log jam. Um, here's a log jam. 
I took that picture in Canada, over on your west side, you know, British Columbia, lots of log jams over there, sometimes natural where they've had landslides like in this case, and the logs have all tumbled in, you get a bit closer, and yes, I went right down to the mouth of that river and I photographed the logs lying all along the beach. You see their front end is abraded? By now they've lost their branches. They have no roots. Um, oh, that's the present day ones. Here's the fossil one. You see all the trees in our site here have not have been picked up somewhere. They've traveled along in the water. They've rolled around. They've been abraded. They've got those pointy ends, just like our modern day log jams. But um, there's a vastly greater number. Here's another one we dug out. And every geologist who's been there, whether they like to admit it or not, has to agree this is a flood dump. But the one flood they don't want to go to, guess what it is? You see, when I did geology at Queensland University, the first week I was there, and I didn't come from a church family, didn't come from a Christian family background, the professor said, we're not going to discuss any such rubbish as catastrophic geology, as Noah's flood. And I thought, why not? I'll be honest, it had the reverse effect on me. It was like putting up a sign that said, wet paint, don't touch. You know what I mean? So I've become a, a little bit more knowledgeable. We dig up some of these logs. It turns out they're southern conifers. We re-erect them. Uh, we even put them in our living fossil garden. Yes, you see, the students would come and dig up the logs, but they had fun digging. I mean, much better in, in, a, in a pit digging a rock bashing something than sitting in a maths lesson, don't you reckon? Then we'd erect them here. We planted all the trees around them. We made up gardens to show that the rocks have fossils in that are no different from the present day plants. Tragically, many have become extinct, but we know this is a living fossil because it still lives at Gympie. It's a southern conifer. Conifer has cones, like a pine tree, but these ones today live only in the southern hemisphere. But you come with me to the Jura Mountains, the famous Solnhofen area where I've collected a few times, you'll find they've got fossil Australian pine trees. You never get asked that, do you? How come Australia's got some, such unusual animals? Well, how come you've got them dead in Germany? The trees? Uh, you realise that that famous fossil so-called forest over there in Arizona is southern conifers, our Australian trees, really? How big is this bed? Well, here's the diagram. You see, our deposit is on the east coast. See where Brisbane's marked? See, as you go north, our deposit is up there. Now, I knew about the size of this bed before I finished university because I majored in sort of coal fossils and then lectured in coal geology. Um, I, I've been to most places on this map. And a few years back, we loaded up a busload of people and we took them all around this bed to show them how big this flood deposit was. What was our indicator? Well, we were looking for trees that had no branches and no roots. And that, by the way, is a, a I know, many watching in the USA, Canada, have no idea how big Australia is. That Australia is as big as the continental USA. It's not just a little part down the southern hemisphere before you move on to Antarctica or something like that. It is huge. And this is sandstone, full of fossil logs. You don't know much about sandstone? I'll give you a bit of a help. If you want to get a cubic metre of sand so you can turn it into sand, you need at least three cubic metres of granite to break up. 
oh, that would take up much of Australia to break down the rock to produce that fossil bed that's made of sandstone. Again, I'm going to finish with a couple of statements. There are many theories and opinions that contradict everything in the Bible, but the facts don't. If you've got questions and we're coming up soon about any of this aspect or anything you can find, uh, particularly about this point, there's the key point we've been making. The world has changed. It, it, change is true, but the change is the opposite of evolution. It's been going from good to bad to worse, but you grab hold of evolution, then don't be surprised another prediction another warning about science, a warning about knowledge. Beware of false science, says the old King James. Watch out for false knowledge, says the new translations. Science is the old Latin word for knowledge. Uh, the Greek word is gnosis. They both mean the same thing. It doesn't matter whether you want political knowledge that will lead you astray, economic knowledge will lead you astray if it's false. Even scientific knowledge will lead you astray. You see, as I grew up, I, had, I, I just embraced evolution because the teachers told me it was true. And you know what I realized? If evolution was true, I could do anything. And after a few years of doing anything I liked, there was nothing in it. I mean, so what? I was smart enough to get away with it. I really was. If I ever got caught, I figured out not how to change my ways. I figured out how to do the same thing again next time and not get caught. How foolish. I'll tell you what, in the end, it didn't satisfy me at all but this did. You see, the real problem we want to do what we want is that we are no longer a perfect creation. The real trouble that Mr. Dawkins doesn't want to face up to is that he's a sinner like me and that Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came to die. Or oh, to tie the knots together as a final point, there's the overall summary from Genesis to Revelation. One man Adam sinned, so one man Jesus died. The wages of sin is paid, so don't be surprised the last chapter of the Bible is also about the same Jesus making the new heavens and the new earth, and he won't even need to use six days to do that. Have you got the point? There are many theories and opinions that contradict everything in the Bible, but the facts never do. I'm going to leave that up for you to have a look at, and uh, we're going to switch back onto the main screen now. Lots of resources there. Many are free. I'm sure they'll give you our YouTube clips and things like that where you can see Search for the Origin of Life and uh, just get in touch with us and uh, keep supporting what these guys are doing. That's what done. You can swap back from PowerPoint to subscreen. Now if we uh, sort of hit the right buttons here. There we go. Awesome presentation, uh, Dr. McKay. We've had a really lively audience. I love the visuals. Uh, that was a great presentation. God bless you for that. Um, George, was there um, anything you wanted to start off with? I will say I've got a ton of questions from the audience pertaining to the topic. Um, and before I get to those, George, maybe you had a, a first well, question you wanted to ask or something you wanted yeah. to kind of start this part off with. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I noticed, John, in one of those um, digs that you were uh, carrying out with those rocks, most of those rocks were polished and we all know how rocks are polished, don't we? Uh, by abrasion and water. Correct, yes. And why would you find them that far in, inland in, into Australia? So there must have been a lot of water. There certainly was. I mean, even the first settlers um, were sort of sidetracked in one sense because they saw abundant evidence of water-laid rocks. So they went looking. You may remember our history. They went looking for an inland sea. 
and uh, all we have, the only remnants we have of it now, is basically the Murray River, ba Murray River Basin. And if yeah. you like geology and tying it together with the flood, the river, the Murray, the biggest river in Australia, uh, the Murray-Darling system, is actually not digging its way out of Australia. It's filling up the big channel that was formed. You can actually drill, drill down through it, right? I had to uh, do contract work with one of the Department of Main Roads for their engineering stuff and advise them on, on what's underneath the, the, the rocks there for one of their engineers. And it's amazing when you actually drill down through the river sediments, you find the river at the top is a little hole in the sediments and then the sediments are sitting in a huge hole where the original water rushed out from that remnant inland sea left after the mega flood that dropped the stuff that you and I call the Jurassic rocks. Yeah. Uh, John, uh, I, I remember in one of your videos you, um, you had a fossilised leaf and it was in the standing position. I call that a... I, I, I say to evolutionists, how can you have a leaf... Uh, fossilized in the standing position over millions of years. Yes, I've, I've actually got hundreds of those now. I just walked past that yesterday because one of the advantages of a COVID year, like I'm, I'm supposed to be totally tied up in South Australia at the moment, but two weeks ago they had a COVID outburst, so they've cancelled everything. And, uh, you know, the airline's holding my ticket for two years once they open up again. But I was just walking past and using the time to clean up our fossils. And I noticed the fossil you're talking about in which we have leaves, some of which are green, standing vertically through the strata. And uh, I've now got hundreds of such leaves uh, in my collection to make a simple point. If that leaf did what it normally does, fell off a tree, slowly fell onto the ground, then mostly it's usually totally disintegrated before something washes it into mud. If it drops into the uh, water, then the bacteria will begin to decompose it as it sinks and lands on the bottom. Just walk through a swamp and have a look. Uh, you'll find the bacteria are decomposing the leaf. And yet when you dig up one that's not only vertical, but you can look at the edges and play rock detective, how much abrasion, how much um, bacterial activity, how many worms have chewed through this, and you find the leaf is in perfect condition, then you know, A, it didn't take a long time to be buried. Um, this, the, the detectives who are looking for bodies, they use the same principle. Um, there's lots of biological activity out there that acts on, a, on a, a, a carcass. So if you are murdered in a swamp and you've only been there a couple of days, not even the fly worms will have hatched out. If you've been there more than a few days, the little fly larvae will come and they'll damage the outside. Eventually the animals will start to cart bits and pieces away and finally there'll let it be the bones left and you'll be half buried. So they have very definitive time lengths. And in the case of our fossil leaves, zero time is your only answer if you want to be scientific. If you want to be foolish and you want to say millions of years are needed to make a fossil, then you have to make up the rest of the story and deny the evidence. That's what really got to me at university. Someone would like, ask, go ahead. Like, like, like uh, I think it was Joe Hubbard that said, uh, fossilization is a process. It, uh, it's actually, it needs to be buried quickly, deeply, and the, the oxygen has to be removed. So it's a process rather than a, a thing that uh, happens over millions of years. Yeah, he's certainly right in that. And he and I have gone all over the planet um, just looking for fossils and collecting them for our museum. 
just like you know you're in Ontario broadcasting uh, as the base we have a museum in Ontario so go to creationresearch.net and look up our Ontario Museum uh, slightly limited schedule at the moment due to COVID but we have one in England we have one in Australia and we we have a general rule with our guys you collect one for your own museum and two for us right <laughs> so we can share the evidence all around the planet so yes you find it everywhere John, John, one of the things that I found, sorry, Stanley, just one more question. Sure, no one problem. One of the things that I found amazing was your rotary flume, where, where you show us, us uh, uh, actually, if you want to play that uh, video, standing, it's only 40 seconds, but it, it, it demonstrates perfectly. I, I, won't, I won't give you the actual um, gist of it. You watch for yourself and tell us what you think of that very simple experiment but very effective at demonstrating what john was trying to actually state yeah i think that's a good um a good I idea george i think what the videos what i'll do is i'm going to put them in the description box just because we've got questions flying in and the chat is lively everybody's lo everybody loved oh, the presentation okay. so um what about this um dr mckay we got a, a super chat that came, that came in from Doki Doki Bible Club. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. What if someone were to say, based on all of this overwhelming evidence for the global flood, especially when it comes to fossils and how a creature has to be buried quickly, as George was saying, what if someone says every continent just has local floods instead of one global one for the fossil record? Okay. Usually people who raise such a question have never lived through a flood and then gone looking for fossils that were formed by it. So we, we have a country here in Australia, which we have just had a year uh, of mega floods. 2011 was an even bigger year of mega floods, right? Now, to my knowledge, not a single animal was fossilized during that whole flooding. And we had floods um, like the 2011 floods were the equivalent of covering Germany and France several times over, right, with water. Um, but in reality, the animals float, and by the time the water's washed away, they're not even covered up. So the, usually it's ignorance and lack of experience that leads to someone asking that question. So you can flip it around and say, okay, what local flood do you know of that's actually produced fossils? They'll, they'll, they've never even thought of that question. Right. So you can expose their ignorance fairly quickly. When you look at the reverse side of it and uh, say, well, how did we end up with terms like Jurassic in uh, Germany, in America, in Australia? The initial sort of reality is, well, we used a general simple rule, wherever you have the same fossils, you give the rocks the same name. And that's, that's a principle that works really, really well. The rocks you can describe by their fossil content. So the rocks describe the fossils, the fossils give you a clue about the rocks. But what most people don't realize is this, this crosses boundaries of nations and you'll find the order is exactly the same in many places. So if you watch our video, uh, what's it called, Darwin on the rocks, and there's another one uh, called What's Up Darwin and a third one called um, Time's Up Darwin. And we actually in that series there, we take you from one country to or we actually uh, we spent a fortune in air points, right? doing all the photography around the planet. I noticed in Tennessee, where I've been working for years, in the Carboniferous rocks, there was a very specific order in which you had coal beds, polystrate trees, you had limestone associated with this, and you had beds of 
um, washed-in plants of a particular sort and then a thin layer of coal, etc. Now, I was wandering through Wales, as one does when one involved in this sort of research, and I said to my driver, stop. There's the same bed as we have in Tennessee. And he said, no, there's no way that can be true. I said, it is. Uh, and I said, if I climb up to that point there, I will find this fossil. And uh, we did that, and not only was he amazed, I was really pleased. So we filmed it, and you can actually see this sort of reality all over the planet. The beds are not just local. Any flood that produced that pattern is doing it on a global scale, not just on a local scale. Because on local floods, you have another process occurring. Your flood comes, it may last for three weeks. Do you and me, if water's all over the country for three weeks, we are really impressed. We tend to forget, okay, after the three weeks, the water runs off. Any mud that it laid down is actually removed because it hasn't had time to turn into rock. It hasn't been compressed by the weight of water or anything. So local floods not only lay down mud, don't make any fossils, but they remove any mud and fossils they may have made. Uh, so that's why you need something that's on a big scale, that's going to be mega in its, its mud production, as well as mega in the number of plants and animals. And thirdly, the plants will always be separated. So you have the leaves over here, you have the trees over here, they've been torn apart. So most people never say, hey, look, there's millions of ferns here. Oh, where's the rest of the environment? It's not a buried environment. Flood didn't come in here and cover up the fern bed. It's torn everything apart. The trees are here. Uh, etc etc so that's another clue that it's not just local floods wow you just put that one to bed dr mckay that was a that was a phenomenal answer um and and you're right you know it just kind of shows um ignorance on their part and maybe just a misunderstanding of, of the flood model too so that was a great response um dr mckay what about this based on your presentation where we saw examples of giant animals in the past including the megalodon um, which I find fascinating, and also devolution you talked about. What about this specific question? Uh, from Honesty Angel, thanks so much uh, for the question in the chat. What would cause everything to be so smaller now, um, or larger, say, before the flood with some of these giants? Okay, uh, probably several ways of coming at this. If we look at human beings and look at the way we grow, we grow pretty fast, um, you know, when we're little kids and then we start to slow down and then we stop. That's growing vertically. After that, most of us grow this way, right? Uh, we're done growing usually by the time we're 15, 16. Some people still marginally growing by 21. But it, it's, it's, it's a fairly static process from then on in. Uh, what affects our size? Well, number one, we have a built-in growth clock. Number two, it's dependent on actual, um, you know, food sources. So that I'm old enough to remember when the Vietnamese, after the Vietnamese war, came to Australia. They'd grown up on low protein diets. They came to Australia, they were diminutive. Grandma and grandpa are still diminutive, but little Johnny's up there with me, right? He's had high quality protein like McDonald's, right? And, and seriously, many of our fast food places are much higher quality food than they would have grown up with uh, particularly if you leave out Agent Orange and things like that. So you will find that the diet affects the size you can reach. But built into human beings is a growth clock. If your growth clock busts, two things can happen. One is you can end up as a pygmy. So their clock turns off when they're 10. So from then on, they will not grow vertically. 
um, unless someone can fix their growth clock hormones. The other end is where it doesn't turn off. And you'll find you end up being impressive like Andre the Giant, but you are dead by the time you're 35 to 45. And usually you are sterile. Um, your body begins to defeat itself. So in the present world, we know that deformities make humans giants and deformities make humans pygmies. And the rest of us, the size we can reach is governed by quality of environment uh, and our inbuilt clock. Now, we're quite different from crocodiles. Um, I live in a country where there are crocodiles. You find fossil crocodiles in Canada. You find them in England. And many of them are mega size compared to the present day. Here's what we know about living crocodiles. Number one, they never stop growing as long as they live. They grow pretty fast for the first 25 years of their life. When they reach maturity, they slow down, but they don't stop. They keep growing every day of their life. The older they get, the bigger they are. In our world, they live to be about 100, get to be five or six metres, and they drop dead. All right, now we've got a fossil display with a, a crocodile that's nearly 30 metres long. That's, uh, for those of you not yet metric over there in the States, that, that's a big crocodile. You know, so you're looking at creatures that are as big as our, our greatest white shark model, you know, the megalodon. Uh, so you'll find that these used to be huge, like the giant dinosaurs. So what do we know about other animals? If you don't stop growing as long as you live, if you live in a world where the quality of the environment, the food, the temperature, etc., is ideal, then you will keep growing every day of your life. You can end up, well, think carefully. The world before Noah's flood, no summer, no winter. That all comes after Noah's flood. Don't make the assumption now is like it always used to be. Now is a degenerate perversion. Climate change started at Noah's day. You're too late if you've only just caught up with it. And it's ruined food supply. It's ruined the quantity of radiation you need to optimize your growth. Before Noah's flood, if Methuselah lived to be nearly a thousand, so did Methuselah croc. And they could be monsters. Aren't you glad they started out being vegetarian? <laughs> I tell you what, what you've got is a world in which the crocodiles no longer live as long. The sharks don't even live as long, and they do better, they do better than most people because the creatures in the sea, many of them still have moderate-length lifespans, you know, 300, 400 years. They can continue growing a lot longer than us on the land who are really beat about by the changing environment. The stresses on the land, whether it comes from the Arctic ice or the, the Sahara Desert, are a much greater range than anything you'll find in the sea at all. So that's your first clue, environment. Uh, your second clue, food. Your third clue, lifespan. Uh, your fourth clue comes from the fact that after Noah's flood, God told Noah he was free to eat meat. Now, I'm sure that was a conscience-rending uh, challenge from God because Noah had never touched meat in his life from what we can gather and yet God gave him permission to eat meat he didn't say he had to but he gave him permission and I can see why you come to Australia you live in the desert there's nothing to eat uh, except a kangaroo uh, so you have one of those killing sticks and knock it on the head um, the kangaroo has hopped around finding bits of grass here and there so you eat the kangaroo not a conscience issue these days for most of us so you will find that in a world where food is challenged and the environment has gone downhill, you end up with creatures that have also started to eat each other. And the one thing I've learned about creatures that are being eaten, it affects their lifespan. 
You got yes. it? <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. does. And it affects your lifespan. It affects how big you can grow, which means one other factor, natural selection, which is very real. And we knew about long before Charles Darwin is also very real. And neither you nor I, I mean, look at the hunting programs. Look at this big eight point buck I found, right? And look at the size of this fish I caught. We don't go for the little ones. We want the big ones. <laughs> we naturally select against the big ones meaning we only leave the little ones alive. So we have been part of reducing the size of all of these creatures because we have taken up hunting and we've gotten better and better at it. We've invented savager and savager weapons to take them out real fast. And so they're not there. The big ones are gone. I mean, if, if you're only a little pygmy and you survive, then you're already going to only have little kids anyway. And so that's what we've got. So all of those things are affecting the question about what made us bigger before the flood, what makes it smaller after that, or one last feature. Remember the point I made about man being sterile? Right, right. Um, think of Adam and Eve, absolutely fertile, heaps of kids by the time you get to Noah. Noah's grandkids are starting to run over the planet. You have Babel. Then they end up in the land of milk and honey. And there are some big people. There's Goliath, etc. Okay, now did you know Goliath's children had six fingers and six toes. Oh, now I've only got five. You see, they were degenerate, right, but they were right. big. But the grapes at the time were beautiful. That's why the Bible describes the land as flowing with milk and honey. It's not just sticky, gooey, smelly, sweet stuff, right? It, it's just abundant in its provision. Now, Goliath had a Mrs. Goliath, and they had children. They weren't sterile. Today's giants are sterile. There'll never again be another race of giants. So there's another complicating factor uh, that you can build into all of this. So there's lots John, more. John, you, yep. What, one, what, one, of the, one, one of the good, 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 good points um, about what you're saying is just recently I remember reading an article about the elephants and the tusks. The evolutionists said, oh, look, the elephants are evolving into um, tuskless or smaller tusks. No, it's because all these poachers have been killing the elephants with the big tusks, removing that gene pool from, from that uh, species. So all we're getting now is elephants with small tusks. There's yeah. no doubt about that. The hunting factor, whether it's us or whether it's other animals. I mean, the old Darwin idea that, you know, the removal of the weak, the survival of the fittest, any lion doesn't want to eat a weak old donkey. I mean, they taste terrible. They're not good for you. So in reality, they go for the strong young ones. So natural selection eliminates the healthy guys, not the unhealthy ones. So, yeah, good point. Well, that was a really uh, great response, Dr. McKay. Um, you're like a, a walking encyclopedia. It's as if you've answered that question before. So many good points there. Yeah, I've had a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's awesome. So a good question just came in here. Actually, what was nice about your previous response to that question, uh, Dr. McKay, is, is you answered several questions that we actually had come in kind of all in one. So that's good. We can kind of move on to uh, maybe something slightly different with uh, fighting back here has a question. Thank you so much. Um, question for John. How does the flood model explain the large amount of limestone, most of which is marine in nature? Doesn't limestone require warm, calm waters to deposit? Okay, uh, you're looking at uh, a, a word limestone, which simply means 
stone as in hard stuff it's an old roman word stone steam stein stain they're all the same word they just mean hard and it's a limey color right and uh, we call it limestone because it was found that if you cooked it and you turned it into powder you could glue things together and the old stone masons who came across from holland and germany lim was their old word for glue so this was the glue stone right so that's the meaning of the word stone now the common ingredients are calcium and carbonate a little bit of water etc a few other things minor silica etc most of which is marine in nature you may be absolutely flabbergasted if you actually go out there and try to prove that it's in the textbooks but you'll find that if you ask how do i prove this is marine in nature the answer is you have to find some marine fossils and you'll be staggered by the fact that a huge amount of limestone is actually chemical not marine right now you've got the next bit doesn't limestone require warm calm waters to deposit well our standard story says yes to that but in reality we get limestone flowing as sheets out of volcanic eruptions um, you will find that limestone is a chemical as well as something that is a chemical used by shells uh, that will then make themselves and so you can end up with mega beds of shells that turn into limestone uh, perhaps i'll explain in our present world we have a few sub turbulent sub catastrophic events like underwater earthquakes so you'll come off the coast there's one thing i'm thinking of right at the moment on the north coast of new zealand you have massive volcanic e e eruptions that have occurred and the whole land has been lifted up the local native story is there was a big flood covering the world and then the local god hauled up the the land uh, in steps right and it, it sort of matches the evidence there and it does include a reference to the flood but in reality at this site you've had plenty of evidence that marine creatures from 2000 meters below are mixed with shells from the uh, from from the seashore because i found them myself you know the nice sort of scallop shells you find over here mixed with tiny little uh, protester sort of things with calcareous uh, shells all all together and the silicious um, protester as well and so you know you've had a flow that's come from one place moved down and collected everything as road and now it's deposited as a very lime rich um, bed now even that sort of scale thing doesn't match any of the limestone beds that we find uh, in the geologic record so let's go back to one of the questions where we, we talked about the size of these beds and I mentioned the limestone uh, that we filmed in Wales you can start with me on that limestone we'll go to Alabama uh, we'll go to Newcastle Alabama right you can go for um, check my whatsapp are you talking to me there George oh no no sorry Dr. No. okay you will find that if you start in the limestone beds in portions of Alabama you can then follow them all the way through up through Tennessee up through Kentucky right up through Pennsylvania because I have walked an immense amount of them right collecting fossils and then you can flip over into Canada and you can exit at, um, at uh, you know uh, Nova Scotia and remember we found those fossil thorns that was Nova Scotia and the limestone is not far away and then you can find it over on the islands in between you can end up in England and if you stood on the west coast of England as we did for one documentary you can say if I was in a Doctor Who phone box I'd swear I was in the same place on the other side 
hence your idea of continental separation, etc. Then you can follow them all the way through and you can fly like I have uh, from England all the way along the Mediterranean, photographing the limestone, all the way down through Jerusalem. And you can see, well, there's even limestone there with fossil snakes with legs in it, right? So if you think limestone has to be marine, I'm sorry, leg snakes don't feature much in marine environments. So you've got all of this, much of which has got shells in, but you'll be staggered by the amount of chemical limestone that's actually out there that just comes out of volcanic rocks. It's soluble and it will reprecipitate. So the person who asked the question need to go back and check how much are you actually asking about because the bigger problem is where did all the chemical stuff come from, not just where did all the shells come from. The shell beds are enormous and they're mixed. Remember the stuff I told you about in New Zealand? You have low-depth stuff mixed with unbelievably deep stuff. Right. So, again, you end up as cat catastrophic. You uh, guys in Canada, if you go up by the lakes, I've walked all of those limestone beds up by the lakes, and you will find gigantic big uh, nautiloids, pointed nautiloids, and yep. you can map the trilobites with them. They all came in the same direction. There is crinoids, right? So I flipped off my photographs to one of the world experts on trilobites and a world expert on crinoids, and, and they said, hey, guys, we've got these two things together. And they said, shouldn't be. I mean, you've got crinoids still off the coast of North America at 150 metres below the sea level, and yet your other creatures that are there, your clamshells and your mussel shells, are all shallow creatures because there's worms in it as well. And so this is a mixed environment. So your limestone there has come from a catastrophic dump on a mega scale. Right. So the I think we covered just about everything there. Yeah, the other the great. other point the other the other point, John, is uh Sec secular explanations about the formation of limestone suggest that uh, they form at one to two centimeters per thousand years. Now we yeah. found we found many fossils that are buried in the limestone. I mean, how can that that creature that's died remain there for thousands of years, waiting for it to be buried? I mean, there there are videos of whale carcasses at the base of the ocean where they've come back two years later, everything, everything, including the bones, have been eaten away. So this, yeah. this, this silly notion that it takes one to two centimetres per thousand years is ridiculous. Well, it's, it's, it's got in reverse, not by observation. The observations are what you've said, right? If you then, on the other hand, say, well, Charles Darwin said the dinosaur rocks were 300 million years old. We've changed that a bit now. They're 200 million years old. But you start at the top of the rocks in Alberta and you go down and you say, well, it's 13, 14, 15,000 feet, 5,000 metres to the granite. Now, all of that had to take at least 400 million years to form. Divide the 4,000 metres by that, that figure and you end up with how much rock had to be laid down at each year. Now, yeah. if that's the way you do it, you then say, well, look, I've got this vellum knot. If you have Joseph Hubbard on your program, I not encourage you to do that. He will show you some of the papers he's done in which we take this long, thin backbone, really, of a squid, and it's standing up through tens of thousands of years of sediment. It can't do that, right? It's, it's a limestone structure. It will dissolve under depth in water, and yet here it is standing up. I know because yeah. I actually found it. Uh, so you will find that stuff is really, really impressive and it's found by having the false assumption we can start by assuming the millions of years are real 
and working backwards. If you start by the observation you mentioned, George, you'll end up saying this is nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Standing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's I'm just I'm soaking it all in. So much good information here. This is really rewatchable. Now the chat is is very lively and bit and busy. So a couple of these questions that came in, I did send a few to you, George, in text. If you want to. Um, if there's a few that oh, you kind of want to sort out and, and get to, no problem. Uh, but oh, one here, but one here that I can um, probably incorporate three or four questions worth into one. The question would be, and I'm going to read it here, uh, Dr. McKay. Why don't we find humans and dinosaurs in the same layers together? And it's kind of um, a question that a few people had. Maybe the ordering of the fossils. Does it support evolution? Does it support a flood? And so on and so forth. Okay. Let me slip a commercial in here because we already have, as you, you said at the start, hundreds and hundreds of questions on our Q&A site. Yes. This is the first book we produced from it, and it's available in the States and Canada. Um, your questions about creation answered. And these are popular questions. And they're good questions. The Lord has no problem with us asking questions about this because he told us to use our brain to love him with our, with our thoughts and to think it through and to study to show ourselves the proof. So if you actually now take the big picture, remember the big picture from good to bad to worse to Ontario uh, that we were portraying there? You find the downhill, the degeneration. You and I assume that if dinosaurs and people lived at the same time, they would be buried in the same place. Now, not one of us would apply that logic to the world today. So where do I find roadrunners apart from the TV show? The answer is in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Let's have a global flood today and uh, portray Noah as being one of the righteous people. And there's, I mean, there's not a huge number of people on the planet by Noah's day because he built a boat that everyone could see was big enough and Noah had to figure out, okay, um, I, I've got to talk to everybody on the planet about this and tell them they can come if they wish. So he didn't have to go very far. He didn't have to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So the people were here and the road runners over there and what will become, you know, where, wherever it's going to end up living. It lives in the Grand Canyon at the moment. But have you noticed what happened between Adam, who was a good man first, and then Noah, who was the only righteous man on the planet, and everybody else was not exactly up to scratch? It says God saw there was violence in the land for all the creatures, humans and the others had become violent. Now, I'm pretty sure that boys then had started to do what boys do now. Come here, pussycat. I'll pull your tail off. Now, the cat disappears. When we become cruel to the animals, not only do they retaliate, they also disappear. They will get out of our road. And I'm pretty sure by Noah's day, you would find the people were here and the animals were as far away from this nasty mob who were violent as they possibly could get. There was no more rapport between the animals and man like there would have been in the beginning. So now you have a flood, the equivalent to today. We have a flood starting with someone in the Middle East. There's only enough people to fill up over there. And you have the roadrunner in the canyon. Now, I don't believe the Middle East or the Grand Canyon existed before the flood, but I'm giving you a, a scale picture. If we have a global flood today, you are not going to find fossil roadrunners alongside of fossil people. The people are living over here. The roadrunners living over there. The people are dead over here. They're dead over there. Why do you expect them to be found together? It's simply not going to happen. Uh, so there's your first clue. Don't judge Noah's flood 
on the way your world is now because your world is a good to bad to worse to way down to the present relic of the world that we started with. Not even our rainfall is like it would have existed even in Noah's day. Everything has changed, sadly, not for the better. I'm only glad Jesus has come and he promises us a new heavens and a new earth. So there's the most important part out of today's get on the Jesus ark, much more important than the Noah's ark. Amen, amen. John, uh, one of the things, I'm going to take you through a bit of a scenario here based around what you said about your your early days at the Queensland University where mm -hmm. uh, I think your, your quote is, uh, we will not be studying any such nonsense yeah. as catastrophic flood geology. Now meet Charles Lyell, right? Yeah. And then, and then uh, I'm going to take you through this scenario. With uh, fossils of the remains and or traces of prehistoric life, the critical mm -hmm. fact is age. Fossils have to be older than 10,000 10, years. Why yes. do they want ages greater than 10,000 years, John? I know the answer. Yeah, okay. Well, you will find that is a quote that's posted up on the wall of the San Diego Museum in the fossil section. Now, this has been the official rule for a long time, but only admitted when they think that they've now got a majority of listening ears because most people look at that and say, oh, yeah, uh, they've been raised with that. They don't even see there's a hypocrisy there. Human beings, how many of them we know were collecting fossils and studying geology 10,000 years ago? Answer, none. Right, mm -hmm. so how do we know that fossils have to be older than 10,000 years? The answer, we don't. Uh, so why do we say it? And the answer is very simple. You see, when you look at the guy who invented the word dinosaur, he's the guy who founded the Naturalist Museum. He's a geologist par excellence. Darwin wasn't. This guy was. Richard Owen's his name. And he was sure that dinosaurs were the monsters God made. Go back before them and you find the world is at a dividing line the people who want to have a biblical framework and the people who want to get rid of the biblical framework, particularly the French at the revolution. They want God out of the picture. So they start by saying, we have to go by whatever's happening now, only the things we can observe. It eventually became known as Charles Lyell's principle of uniformitarianism, but um, the English don't like sharing credit with it. The French actually really got that one kicked off and up and running. So you'll find the uniformitarianism uh, actually says only us, only we are the standard. Uh, man is the measure of all things. It's the same way the ancient Greeks said it. So you'll find that in the present, if you don't see fossils forming in a local flood, then it must take longer than a local flood. Getting the picture? Time yeah, becomes and because it's not, you're not seeing it happen now. So it must take longer than your lifespan. So you get to the point where nobody says, excuse me, how, how come you can't be a fossil if you're only 9,999? Why, why don't I have to wait till I'm 11,207? Who makes up these rules? And the answer is the board behind, right? The people who, who want you to do the thinking their way. Um, that's why the Science Teachers Journal in the USA, when it came out with that quote about what science is in, what was it, November 2003, if I got that correct, we can go to our Q&A site or we can go to our fact file site and put in science teacher and get the exact reference to that. They said science is any explanation. No, 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 I didn't quite quote that right. Any naturalistic explanation, dot, 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 without reference to God. In other and words, you've gone from the guy who invented the word dinosaur, who was sure they were monsters God made, right up to the current world where God doesn't get a look in. 
So why pick 10,000? Because you know and I know and even the skeptics know and Richard Dawkins knows that doesn't matter how much you add up the years in the Bible, even if you throw in all the so-called missing gaps, you can't justify more than 10,000 years back to the beginning. That's where the 10,000, that's why they say that. So it gets rid of Genesis, in other words. It gets rid of Genesis, yeah. brings in humanism, and you didn't yep. even notice. That's why the yeah. Bible says, beware, the devil has been alive from the beginning. Now, now my, my follow-up question to that is, we've had discussions with uh, Professor David McQueen, and we've asked him the same question. I, I, with regards to young earth creationists and... Um, you know, universities, he mentioned that he was prevented from completing his PhD because they thought that they couldn't allow a young earth creationist, um, I guess, ob obtain a PhD in geology. What's your experience in that area? The discrimination side, if you're a young earth creationist, do you get discriminated? Okay, well, since David is a fellow Scot, um, you know, we he and I correspond about that, and I one year went and filmed his old family church and all those sort of things, his village where, where the area where he came from. So we keep in touch. And yes, that sort of discrimination is very real, right? So that uh, one of the newer onboard creations out here was a professor um, at the university not far from here. And as soon as he became convinced of Noah's throat, he was sidelined. And then it got to the point where, you know, they were just washing him out of the picture. Uh, you can stay here. We're not going to dismiss you, but neither will you get any funding or, you know, opportunities or whatever. Uh, you, you got the point. And the answer is yes, you do get discriminated against. So when I presented a paper to the Sydney Basin Coal Conference, it wasn't too long because they got my point. They, you know, I was dealing with coal and rapid coalification. And we're currently running experiments at our Jurassic Ark. And you can keep up with these sort of things on our research file on creationresearch.net. But they didn't mind knowing that you could make coal. They didn't want to know you could make it real fast. Because if you can make it real fast, you don't need the millions of years. If you don't need the millions of years, it's not time, it's process. And the process, uh-oh, the smarter you are, the faster the job gets done. A really smart God can make a universe in six days. In fact, a really, really smart God can remake a universe in one word, which is what he's going to do. And, and, and obviously you're aware of the um, experiments the CSIRO have done on oil production, but there's yeah. also almost, almost on a yearly basis, we're getting reports and papers that are written on um, the formation of crystals, opals. It, uh, the latest one I read was about diamonds. You yeah. don't need millions of years to create these gemstones and diamonds and oil. No, you need you need a process, not time. I mean, that's how yeah. industry always run. You know, if you save time, you save money. So a smart guy works out how to do it better. And uh, since the Bible says everything was made in six days, it must be possible to even make uranium in a short amount of time rather than watching it fall apart in a long amount of time in order to prove that life can take even longer to evolve. It becomes crazy, right? So therefore, yes, all of these things, sooner or later, there must be a way in which they can be made in a short period of time. So hence we're running experiments on rapid coal and rapid oil formation at low temperatures, whereas most of them today use higher temperatures, uh, whether it's the precipitation of carbon out of gas to make diamonds or whatever. So, yes, process, not time. 
Yeah, John, I'm not sure if you're aware of the Proton 21 laboratory in Ukraine, but there's a process called Z-Pinch, where they fire a concentrated laser beam at a uh, metal, and they found that they can create the heavier metals uh, in real time. And the interesting, part, the interesting part about that, though, is what they find with the heavier metals, they find the parent-to-daughter ratio almost the same as that naturally found on Earth, which goes back to that uranium, uh, making the uranium part about it. And, and I find all these things are amazing. And the, all these little clues are now appearing that are making the Genesis story more plausible and believable. Yes, and sadly, you're also finding, like one professor invited me to come and lecture at his university. And when I told him that I was amazed that they'd even let us in, the reason he gave was, well, I've discovered that you guys are being persecuted by peer review, refusing to review anything you do. And he said, I would have thought originally that was because you guys were just way off theme. But he said, now, because I've got a process that works and it doesn't fit the ordinary science model, I'm, I'm suffering the same problem. So I'm beginning to reevaluate. So come and talk to all my students. So it's actually becoming a weapon and that's used politically to keep anybody out of the scientific arena who the elite don't want in. Uh, Dr. McKay, I've got a, a question from myself that comes to mind because I've heard a number of critics, um, even some very outspoken critics, where they have purported that there could not have been a global flood because we don't find a single flood layer. Now, is this an accurate, is this an honest objection or argument, would you say, Dr. McKay? Um, it's a good example of ignorance so that if you look at what the flood is, again, remember the point I said, if someone says, I can't believe the Bible, give them a Bible and ask them which point they can't believe. Yeah. Find usually the evidence is they haven't got a clue what's in it. So if you want to be patient, say, well, you say there's no evidence of a flood. What are we looking for here? And I say a single flood layer. And so hang on, let's look through the record and see if a single flood layer is what you're after. At that point, you'll discover whether they're the people Jesus spoke about when he said, if you go to a village and they're not interested, shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. Uh, because they're not interested, right? Uh, they're not interested in the truth. So don't waste your time. But if you find someone that says, oh, I've never read that story, let's look. Number one, you'll find there's no rain in the world beforehand. No rain means no erosion. No erosion means no mud. No mud means no fossils. So the rocks before Noah's day um, you will find that there was one geologic event on day three of creation where the dry land was lifted up. That's possibly a means of producing sediments, uh, but no fossils in it. So your very best explanation is the geologic column should have a catastrophic base that's fossil-free, right, on a, part, on, a, on a global scale. So the next thing up, the next major event that's liable to produce or the only event that will produce fossils coming up next is Noah's flood. Why? Because you're told it involved water. You're told it was aiming to destroy the planet. You're told it was going to kill everything that wasn't on the ark that breathed there. Okay, so what happens? You get number one on the day the flood starts. You're starting in chapter seven. You know, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the second day of the month, uh, you will find it says it began to rain. The heavens broke open. And it also tells you the fountains of the deep came out. Right, So all the water that went into the world on the third day of creation is now coming out. 
just as the waters above are also falling down. So you are beginning to have massive catastrophic events. Hence, you find if you keep reading a little bit further, it says after 40 days and 40 nights, everything that breathed air was dead. There was nothing alive outside the planet. Now, plants, of course, um, are free to float around. Many of the seeds will last submersion. Even Charles Darwin did the experiment showing you can put plants in water and in two years, three years, four years, seven years, ten years, the plants will still germinate, right? We've, we, I myself have done that experiment for seven years and, and it's certainly true. They will just lock up and then they'll re-germinate when that moisture uh, content in the ground gets to be the right, uh, right, right, right value. Okay, but when you look at the other thing, think carefully. It then goes on to record month by month. So you know Noah had a calendar pretty much like ours. On the 30th day, on the 20th day, whatever, there's a whole year of them being on the ark. And on the 370th day, they finally get off the ark. But what you find is the water actually was going down and the ark was on, on dry ground in the ninth month. Now, in between, here's what you've got. Start of the flood, massive catastrophe from above, massive catastrophe from below. Okay, you now have a world in which there already exists solar influences, such as two tides a day, right? The world is spinning. So you have water now moving higher and higher. So at the end of the 40th day, all the high hills under the whole heaven are covered. All right, so the water's coming up. The world is spinning. Two tides are coming each day, influence of the moon and the sun. So you have now lots of competing forces. The erosion is going to be unbelievable, but the water is also moving. Now, I'd also recommend that people go to our Jurassic Ark site, uh, our creationresearch.net, click on Jurassic Ark Research Experiments, and you'll see our strata machine where we set up that rotary one purely to prove that there are layers in water whenever it's moving and they're there whether there's anything in them or not. The layers don't get laid down one at a time. The layers are actually already in the water while it's moving. Watch Hunt for Red October if you uh, want to see that because the submarine captains are looking for those layers. You would just see water, but there's actually layers going in all directions in that water. So you would not expect one flood layer just from that alone. But this goes on for basically nine months as the water rises up and then it starts to come down again. And as it comes down, you now get reworking of many of the beds and redepositing on a smaller and not so global scale. And then I'm sure that as the, the plants begin to regenerate, right, one reason Noah didn't get off the ark for three months is they needed grass out there and plants and fruit for all the creatures to grow. And so you're getting erosion all the time and smaller and smaller deposits. So you will find, hey, why are you expecting one flood layer? Now, that doesn't even happen in a local flood today. So you're asking an idiotic question, and I'm trying to be nice about explaining why you're an idiot. <laughs> John, John oh, uh, a, question, a question on erosion. I always use this. It's, it's actually a secular example. Their own erosion rates suggest the earth erodes at six centimetres per thousand years. And they equate that to the landscape on Earth being eroded to sea level at around 12 million years. 
even if you give them that and they say, oh, well, it's eroded and it's gone into a basin and then it gets uplifted and the next layer gets eroded, I mean, you've got to ask, if this happens over millions and millions of years and it's been repeated a number of times, number one, why do we find fossils? And number two, why would you trust the, the dating of the layers if the top layer becomes the bottom layer and it literally gets flipped over. And, well, you're and, the sort of person who'll never graduate in geology because you ask too many good questions. Um, <laughs> I'm serious about that. That's the sort of discrimination that's actually used to get rid of you. Um, so anyway, uh, you've, you've pointed out something that really is important. Now, regardless of the figure you use, because it depends on which expert. Is it Mount Everest and the erosion that's occurring there? Is it the mountains in England? Uh, which area are you talking about? Because all the rates will vary. If there's no vegetation there, is it the wind erosion in the Sahara Desert that blows sand onto the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea? So they all vary, but they nevertheless make a very good point. If you make a layer that as soon as it's lifted one millimetre above sea level will begin to erode, then your whole principle is challenged. But there's an even more important principle here that most people miss. Um, when you look at the way in which we are taught layers form, the school teacher gets a jar of water, puts sand and mud and pebbles in and shakes it up and down, puts it down, and then you see the pebbles settle down, then the sand, then the mud. And the teacher says that's how rock layers form. And as I love to tell people, that's a wonderful experiment if the world was a glass of water. But it isn't. Because in Noah's flood and in the present day, water moves sideways. Mo moving water, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so what you'll find is the layers are already in that water. And here's where we started with the right presupposition because we were flood-based, we were creation-based. Nicholas Stino, bless his heart, who gave us so much that we can work with in geology and paleontology, etc. He made one assumption. Uh, assumption, the old statement that makes an ass out of you and me, right? So that when you have a look at his assumption, he assumed the bottom layer got there first. Now, you want to be a scientist? You want to do what the Bible says, test everything, only keep the things that are true? You want to watch out for false science? How many layers did Nicholas Stino ever watch form at the bottom first? None. None. Absolutely none. Right, yeah. but yet you build from there, then the second layer got there next, the third layer, the fourth layer, fifth layer. So it's a really short period of time before you find geologists uh, in its infancy in those days and scientists and particularly physicists, uh, particularly like John Ray in England, said if Nicholas Steno is right, the world is far older than the Bible allows. What was his logic? You find dead creatures in the bottom layer. If the next layer formed on top, then whatever's dead here had to live its whole life and die before it was buried. So even if it's only 25 years of one worm, then another 25, you've got millions of layers, all of a sudden the world is millions of years old, all based on a false presupposition. The minute you know layers form sideways, because that's how water flows, and only moving water, only flowing water, carries mud and can bury things. So the whole assumption of the geologic column and the, and the fossil record is a fallacy right from the start. But boy, has it led us by the nose. It took me many, many years to actually find out where, where are we gone wrong here. Yeah, John, I, I could talk to you all day, mate, but um, 
what what I'd like to do before I hand it over to uh, Standing for Truth, uh, I urge uh, all our listeners to visit the Creation Research Channel. They have absolutely numerous short videos showing practical examples of how geological features occur in real time. And, and just some examples here, like the subduction zones, cross-bedding, polystrate tree experiments, paired layer formations, the rotary flume experiments that we mentioned, and many more. And here's the best part. You don't have to wait millions of years to watch it happen. This is empirical evidence anyone can repeat in a flume. So that's, that's the gold standard of science, isn't it, John? It really is. It really is. And... We even have, you might have noticed, I don't know if you've got the broadcast yet, but we have our Christmas webinar coming up, which will have an awful lot of oh, interesting things. You, you beat up. me to it. I was going to oh, mention yeah. that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, we, we're actually planning to show uh, part of that video, but uh, since you mentioned it, yeah, there's a planned, um, what, four or five uh, live no. telecasts? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, one, one's a face, Facebook live telecast. Yes, and you might be interested as part of that, the Southern Cross was visible from Jerusalem to BC. There you are. And guess what oh. town it pointed to? I won't tell you. You'll have to watch the webinar. Oh, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> um, I got to say, this is awesome, and we really appreciate your, your time, Dr. McKay. This has been uh, truly a blessing. The audience is having a great time. Uh, we could talk to you, like George said, all day. We've still got 40 people in the chat. I will say your uh, answer from a, a couple questions ago on the flood layer was awesome. And you answered a question that came in about where did all the water come from? Where did all the water go? And you pointed out that the waters are coming from the earth when the fountains of the great deep broke open and also from above when the windows of heaven opened up. So I wouldn't want you to have to repeat yourself, but that was a question that kind of came in a few times as to where the water came from and where it went. Is there anything you'd like to add to that or? Um, just the bit we didn't really touch was where it went. Uh, remember when you have a look in Genesis and it describes God raised up the dry land and this is on the third day and he put all the water into one place. Now, when the Bible mentions something, God has deliberately told you as much as you need to know um, for both particularly, you know, long-term spiritual truth, the etern eternal life or the judgment of hell, all of those things. There's enough information for you to find out all the key things. And then there's some tantalizing little clues like how much was land in the new creation? Uh, was it like today where you have most of the world covered by water uh, or was it the opposite? So the fact that it mentions the water was put into one place is your clue. I spent time with a Hebrew expert saying, why would God tell us the water is in one place? Surely it's obvious it's in one place. It can't be anywhere else. Well, secondly, he said, that means there's no multiple oceans, right? There's no oceans like we have today separated by continents. And he said, in reality, it means the water is the smallest of the two features mentioned. So there's land and the water is in one place. If the water was the biggest part, the land would be in one place, like an island, right? And he said, no, this is telling you the water is the smallest part. So if you want to mentally draw a picture of a world which is sort of 75% land and 25% water, as opposed to the opposite today where it's 75% water and 25% land, you're now being able to see uh, what's happening there. So you have a minimal amount of water on the surface and all the water that was... 
uh, put into the ground that used to cover the earth is now underground. It's going to become the fountains of the deep. And the water was under the ground and the water was on the patch. That's on the third day. Go back to day one. The world was created covered with water. So Noah's flood is the second time the world was covered by water. So if you've got a problem on was there how, uh, enough water, there always was. The world was created covered with water. The interesting question is where did it go to between the two? Day three is a clue. Most of it went underground. Some of it came up. But then when you go to the world at the end of Noah's flood, where again it says God raised up the mountains and he sank down the valleys and the water ran back to a place uh, where it was appointed. And it would never again flow up and cover up the whole earth. Now you will find that the world after Noah's flood is a place where there's multiple seas, right? Even the people of Israel, they knew about the Great Sea, they knew about the Dead Sea, they knew about the Sea of Galilee. The water was in multiple places after the flood uh, and it was only in one place before the flood. So where is the water? It's here now. Best reference that I ever found to that, the old time life. Remember those nice magazines we used to think were the, the epitome before WhatsApp and things like that came along? You will find they did a book series on the world. One of them was on the ocean. And its introduction says there is enough water on the face of the earth to cover that the whole earth. If you sort of sank Mount Everest, there's enough water to cover a whole earth um, to a depth of three miles. Right, so there's yeah, plenty of water and it's still here. Most of it's now on the surface. Quite a bit of it is still underground. We're finding more and more reservoirs deep underground of water but uh, there's no problem in fitting the water on the planet that was created covered with. Yeah, as, as an engineer, John, I always tell them we're standing on it. you just got to dig a uh, metre or so and you'll find water or at least moisture. Good survival trick if you want to be out in the desert with me. Yeah. Uh, uh, standing, do, do you want to play that, that short? Can we play that short three-minute video of um, the Christmas events that John has planned? Yeah, I think I might have to put it into a box here to share screen. So maybe give me a minute. And yep. while I do that, or we can even end with that. Um, an another great answer, um, Dr. McKay. And I notice, so I want to recommend people to go to your askjohnmckay.com website because, I mean, you've got answers to every, every question there. And um, it's an amazing resource. You guys are doing amazing work. One question that you do answer there that I personally hear all the time, and I'm sure everybody has, and obviously you have, is if the rain for, for Noah's flood was fresh water, then how did saltwater fish survive? We hear it all the time. Yes, well, it's a common question. And uh, I sort of uh, got an answer to that even before I was a Christian. You know the old saying, it's raining cats and dogs? Well, I've never actually noticed yeah. cats and dogs falling out of the sky except in tornadoes. But um, I'd heard rumours that fish fall out of the sky too. And being a keen fisherman, I thought, I wonder if this is true. So when I was about 10, it started to really rain heavily. It blew in over the sea we were living near. So I went and got a bucket. And sure enough, I caught baby fish coming down out of the sky. And they were doing well, but the only source was the salt water nearby. So it was very evident that fishes seem to have a way of dealing with the salinity of the water. Now, track down 20 years and I'm sort of finishing geology, going and doing zoology. 
uh, doing an extra three years of genetics, and you discover one thing. Many fishes migrate from salt water to fresh water with no trouble. We are plagued by one of them here in Australia called a shark, particularly the <laughs> bull shark. Uh, you know some like salmon and tuna who can do this. Some fishes seem to have lost that ability totally, so you dump salt water into them and you'll kill them straight away. Many of the goldfish are in that category. But you actually can put a grain of salt in every day and convert them slowly. So they have that innate capacity, but it's not, not in a very good shape at the present time. So it would seem to be that the initial fishes were created. They had to have minerals in the water. No one can live in purely fresh water, right? If you want to see why not, get a pile of fresh water, put your hand and leave it in. You'll find that your hand shrivels up. Um, and I'm sorry, it's the other way. It swells up because the fresh water is taken into your hand to try and balance out the chemical pressure that's in your blood versus the, the nothing chemical pressure in the water. So no creature can live in purely neutral fresh water. You have to have minerals in it. So the original creatures have to be designed to have both a mineral detector, a mineral feedback system, and a mechanism to adjust the osmotic pressure across the surface uh, of its skin. So they all had that perfect in the beginning. So it never was a trouble for them to move from fresh to salt water. And at the moment, we're uh, increasing problems for them by dumping more minerals in the in the creeks and rivers and things like that, you know, fertilizer. John, John the um, it's it's kind of like a, a shooting yourself in the foot question because if if you uh, accept the secular timeline of millions and billions of years, the oceans should be so salty that nothing could live in them. So on one yeah. hand, they they're actually shooting themselves in the foot. They, they really are because the, the, the salt goes one way. It doesn't sort of come out. It just builds up and builds up. So what you really get to learn from that, and most not even most Christians like to uh, think it through, there is a terminal point when the ocean will die. Yeah. And that was a great answer, uh, Dr. McKay. It does. It looks like there have been a lot of inbuilt mechanisms for adaptive change. Um, I like to call it the front-loading of genetic information at creation by God. I mean, we're even seeing today rapid change in new environments. So um, changes, as you're saying, in, in new environments, if the mechanisms are already built into the organisms, then it's not it's not difficult. Um, that, yeah, that, that's a great answer. Um, let, let me see. One came in here that I should... Say, and then we're going to start winding down. I want to keep you all day. We're going on a couple hours now. I'm going to apologize to the chat. Uh, lots of good questions came in, and that's why I want to direct everybody to Dr. McKay's websites where all these questions can be answered. Um, let me see. I think I might have, I hope I didn't lose it. Here we go. I think this is the one right here. Hate, love, nothing. Has the doctor eaten kangaroo? <laughs> and how greatly can we affect physical geography? Yes, I've hunted, smoked, and eaten kangaroo. It's just hard to keep down. It wants to keep coming up. Uh, sorry. <laughs> It, if you have a fresh young kangaroo, it's quite delightful. If you have an older one after a drought, it's tough as, right? So, yes, I've eaten kangaroo. Um, much of our dog food out here, despite Skippy the kangaroo being so popular overseas, much of our dog food is kangaroo because they simply are here by the millions. They have this neat trick that the female is perpetually pregnant, right? So they can be reduced to almost zero in a big drought 
as soon as it rains, there's babies everywhere. Uh, so uh, it, it's a very inbuilt survival mechanism that only a God who could foresee how far downhill uh, the world would go would actually even think of. And the uh, second question, I've sort of forgotten that in the excitement of responding about kangaroo delicacy. <laughs> no no problem. Let me uh, find it again here. And here we are. How greatly can we personally affect physical geography? Um, if you fly over Phoenix, Arizona, you will find wonderful slap in the face for all the uh, climate change gurus. It's <laughs> hotter and drier now than it's ever been because you can fly out and you'll see the old Native American Indian canal systems, uh, which were put in as the central part of America began to die weather-wise. You go to the Grand Canyon, you find abandoned villages, abandoned residences um, that, that it just got too dry for them and too hot to live there. So that central part desertified. Uh, you know, 1,400, 1,500, whatever, and was, in, in essence, abandoned by and large because of the climate uh, climate change. But those canals we dug, most people can't see them because they're already begun to decompose. Um, you will find you get massive canyons forming from floods. Um, you know, some will just bash their way through hillsides with no trouble whatsoever in a day or so. Um, as to the permanency of it, Whatever you can make in a day can be destroyed in a day. And uh, so even the evidence of Noah's flood slowly decomposes with time and gets covered up. The rocks fall apart. And it was only because it was on such a global scale for such a prolonged period of time, you can even go and look for it. Um, so that, that's it. Our effect in the long run is fairly minimal. The most sad one we've got at the present time, we load up a satellite with gold. We load it up with water. We shoot it into outer space. It's going to go to the edge of the solar system. We are, for the first time in history, depleting our um, planet elementally with some crucial stuff. Uh, that, that will have a bigger impact in the long run than we're willing to actually admit. But the good news is I'm going to get a brand new planet. I'm looking forward. Jesus Christ is making a new heavens and new earth. And if you trust Christ out there, I'm looking forward to seeing you. We can catch up on the chat because my time clock here in Australia is running to my next appointment. I hate to tell you that, guys, but uh, we are, we've had a great time. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you again for uh, being so generous with, with your time, Dr. McKay. And uh, time has flown by. It's been a couple hours. I want to thank everybody um, in the chat for their questions, super stickers, and super chats. George, yeah, just the floor quickly, is yours, standing, Just quickly, yeah, of just course. quickly, uh, Dr. McKay, have you ever eaten galah? I don't recommend it for two reasons. Number one, when you watch a galah drinking, um, drinking water, you will discover if you have your chemistry kit handy, it can tolerate 30 times the cyanide oh. you can. Right? No, no, no. So, the, the, the secret is, is, is in how you cook it. I'll tell you how you cook it. You start up a campfire. Oh, you're asking a, a George joke question. Come on, be honest. You get a really, really hot, hot campfire going. You've got to heat up the rocks. You put you, you defeather the galah. You put the galah on top of the rock. You wait about half an hour. You turn it over. And when it's cooked, you throw away the galah and you eat the rock. Yes, yes, I'm familiar with rock, Melon. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this has been a blast. This has definitely been one to remember. I'm looking forward to uh, re-watching it, sitting back and, and taking all this uh, great information in. So God bless you. God bless you, John. Um, John McKay, you, you're awesome. The chat loves you. I'm going to let you have the last word if you want yep. to, um, you know, give anybody any additional information about yourself, about your ministry, your work. And then uh, we'll call it a night, at least for me in Canada, and call it a morning for you over in Australia. Yes. Don't forget the materials, like the stuff for the kids, young teens. Or if you want to follow this through, like this is a Bible study book we wrote. There are It is available in the States and in Canada now. Walking with Jesus through Genesis. He's been my best Bible teacher uh, ever since I became a Christian. And you'll love the things that I've learned from his work, about his work. Go to creationresearch.net and you can click on shop. Uh, if you want to help us in what we do, then there's ways to do that there. You can click on, uh, you know, gifts or whatever you like. Sign up for our newsletter. And uh, we're really glad to have joined you today. Amen. You, God John. bless Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Okay, guys. Well, I hope Good you enough. had fun. Um, us at Standing for Truth, we are out for the day. God bless. We're at.